our souls what a privilege it is to experience your joy your true happiness and God we pray now that you will bless the proclamation of this word bless the preparation God use it for your glory and honor may your people be glory may your people be blessed and may the devil be terrified at what goes forth in Jesus name amen I invite you to turn with me again to look at Matthew uh, chapter 5, and I want to shine the sermonic spotlight on verse 4 today, which reads, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I want to continue on today in this series of sermons entitled, How's Your Attitude? How's your attitude? How's my attitude? That's a rhetorical question that we need to ask ourselves occasionally. How is my attitude? I recently read about a pilot who was flying a commercial plane over a valley with a beautiful river running through it. He was peering out of the window so intently that his co-pilot asked, what are you looking at? He replied, do you see that river down there? I used to live in one of those homes by the river. And as a little boy, I sat on a log beside it and fished. Every time a plane flew over, I would look up and wish that I was flying. But now... Every time I fly over this area, I look down and wish I was fishing. (laughs) During the days Jesus walked the face of the earth, the Greek islands of Cyprus was one of the favorite places for personal retreats. People like to go there to get away and to relax. But in our day, it it is considered a resort where the rich and famers anchor their yachts and play in the sun. The island was called Macarius Island. The reason this name was used uh, is it is believed that those who lived there on this island now called Cyprus had everything necessary for happiness. They had natural resources. They had fresh water fruit trees, wildlife, beautiful flowers everywhere. The island was essentially uh, self-contained. Cyprus was deemed the place to live. Oh, if I could live in Cyprus, how happy and how content and how full of joy my life would be. In other words, if you could live there, happiness was guaranteed. The Greeks just naturally assumed that if they could live where they never needed anything or anyone and where everything to sustain life was readily at their fingertips, they assumed that they would be completely happy. The truth of the matter is that this definition of happiness is flawed. No matter where you live, 
no matter the cost or size of people's toys, no matter how much sun they get, how much pleasure they enjoy, they will not be happy with those things alone. Because happiness, true happiness, is not about stuff or the lack of stuff. There are a lot of people who have a lot of stuff. They're not happy. In fact, they're miserable. And then there are a lot of people who discarded their stuff and, in search of happiness, and they're miserable. But happiness is not about stuff or the lack of stuff. Happiness is about attitude. Like the pilot who while fishing wished he was flying and while flying wished he was fishing, happiness eluded him. Happiness, the, the joy of the Lord, the, the satisfaction and the, and the deep fulfillment in life, it's not about being a certain place. It's about attitude. So it is in Matthew 5, Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. and We looked at lesson one from last week, which was a lesson about trust and dependence upon Jesus. For verse three reads, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught in lesson one that those who had an attitude of total trust and dependence upon him would rejoice because the kingdom of heaven would be alive in them right now, thus producing real lasting joy. That is, those who trust in Jesus would be rejoicing because they would experience his power, his peace, his presence, his provisions, and his protection. And today, lesson two, Jesus teaches his disciples what their attitude should be towards sin. In verse four, he states, blessed are those who mourn. The word mourn in the text is a word that means to have a broken heart. It, it is like the deep sadness that occurs over the death of a loved one. It is the strongest word used in the Bible, in the New Testament, for mourning. It is sorrow in this context for sin. It is a broken heart over evil intentions and evil behavior. It is the brokenness of self that comes with seeing Christ on the cross and realizing that it was our sins that put him there. The morning is the sadness that floods the hearts of those who genuinely love Jesus when we willfully, knowingly, deliberately disobey his will. Godless sorrow 
authentic brokenheartedness over our sins leads us to repentance, to turning away from those sins, whatever they may be. When our hearts are generally broken over those sins, we will turn away from them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, for godless sorrow produces repentance. Did you get that? Not half-hearted sorrow, not sorry that I got caught, but godless sorrow leads to salvation. Godless sorrow, also translated godly grief, is an acute, that means heightened, super sensitive, severely sharp sense of sadness we experience as a result of sins we have committed. Is, is there anybody that's been there? Have you ever been there where, where after a sin there is this heightened, this super sensitive, this severely sharp sense of sadness and pain in our lives as a result of sin? Well, that's mourning. That's what Jesus is talking about. Godless sorrow, this mourning that Jesus is talking about, is a kind of wretchedness that brings the repentant sinner to, to the point of tears, sharing tears of grief. Have you ever shared tears over a sin that you have committed? That is godly sorrow. That is mourning. A good example of this is Peter at the time of Jesus' arrest and trial. You, you remember the, that old familiar story? They've arrested Jesus and his trials are, 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 are in progress, are about to, is in progress, his trial is. And when accused as being one of Jesus' disciples, the Bible says Peter, Peter disowned Jesus by cursing and swearing to his accusers that he did not know the man. And upon hearing, upon hearing the rooster crow three times, he remembered the words of Jesus who had prophesied Peter's very actions. Peter, you will, you will deny me. No, I won't, Lord. Yes, you will. No, I won't. If I have to die for you or with you, I will not. But he did it. The rooster crowed, and he remembered the words of Jesus who prophesied of his actions. And the Bible says, Matthew 26, 74, 20, 75, and he went out and wept bitterly. That's the morning Jesus is talking about. His sin tore him up on the inside. God have mercy on people who can sin and feel no mourning. James counsels his believers with these words. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is referencing this kind of deep sorrow with his command to grieve, mourn, and wail. 
The words of James are similar to the words of Old Testament prophets who call for people to repent, to grieve, to lament over their sins and sit in sackcloth and ashes. Well, another illustration of godless sorrow was demonstrated by David. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart, Acts 13.22. And David revealed his own godless sorrow for his sins in many of his psalms. You know, he was a great poet. He, he wrote a number of the psalms. And as you read these psalms uh, of David, uh, you get a sense for the sorrow that he felt uh, over his sins and transgression. For de- example, David wrote these prolific and prophetic words in Psalm 6 and 6 expressing the gut-riching pain associated with his sin. Listen to what he says. I am weary with my groaning. All night. Look at this poetic imagery here. All night I make my bed swim. What he's saying is I'm I'm crying. I'm crying tears all night to the point where my pillar is soaked, my bed is soaked. That he says, I make my bed swim. Isn't it amazing? He says, I drench my couch with tears. What he's saying, even during the daytime. When I'm seated on my couch, I'm still crying, brokenhearted over my sins. That, my brothers and sisters, is genuine, godly mourning. Jesus is saying you are blessed when sin, committing sins, have that kind of impact on your life. In fact, when sin has that kind of impact on our lives, it encourages us not to go back there. He says, he says, my eyes waste away because of my grief. David says, I can't even see straight. I can't even look into the eyes of my friends and my men. I cannot even see life like God wants me to see life because of my sin. My eyes waste away because of my grief. It grows old because of my enemies. My enemies are glorying and gloating in my sin. You see, David, although uh, committed sin in private, he understood that that people knew uh, about it. But David is mourning over the reality of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. The godless sorrow of David was produced by a heartfelt conviction that he had offended God. And that is mourning. So it was in the text Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says you are blessed when sin tears you up on the inside. 
when your bed is soaked with tears, when your bed is swimming, when your couch is drenched with tears over sin, you're blessed. Jesus said, blessed are those who lament over their wrongdoing. Blessed are those who are heartbroken, who grieve deeply and deeply distressed by personal sin because they shall be confident. The word confident in the text means having settled peace, having a relief, a solace, a consolation within that only God can put there. Oh, yes, to be sure, they are artificial means of trying to get peace, peace through alcohol abuse, peace through drugs, peace through uh, illicit relationships, but the peace that Jesus is talking about is lasting peace, the consolation that only God can put within us. Jesus says, when you mourn over your sins, that peace will come. Notice comfort comes, I want you to notice, after the morning. Notice that in the text he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be confident. Comfort does not come before the morning for sin, before brokenheartedness. Blessed are those who mourn, and then the comfort will come. If there is no mourning over our sins, there is no comfort. If there's no grief, no pain, no sorrow, then comfort is held up at the gates until the morning takes place. The reason is because until genuine mourning occurs, until authentic sorrow for sin takes place, until real inward grief over sin is accomplished, there will be no repentance. Ah, uh, yeah, until we really uh, grieve, until we're really sorrowful, there will be no change, no repentance. And without repentance, there will be no forgiveness. Without repentance, we carry all of that stuff around. Where there's no forgiveness, there is no comfort. So Jesus says, morning is a good thing because mourning is a prerequisite to repentance and repentance is a precondition for forgiveness and forgiveness is a preliminary is a preliminary to God's comfort did you get that first there is repentance then there is forgiveness then there is God's comfort therefore Jesus says in verse 4 of the text that the comfort will not come until the work of mourning has been adequately accomplished amen now the question before us this morning is, can you, can I 
truthfully say that we are experiencing God's comfort, God's God's peace, God's solace, God's relief in our lives? Are we really, truly experiencing God's comfort? Do you and I have relief and release from guilt and shame? associated with sins of our past? Are we really free? Are you having a personal encounter? Am I having a personal encounter with the words of Jesus on a daily basis found in John 14, 27? Jesus said these words to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world giveth, Give I unto you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Are we experiencing that kind of comfort in our homes, in our places of worship, in our schools, on our jobs? Well, if you are experiencing God's comfort, praise his holy name. Because that means you have learned to mourn, to grieve, to lament over the sins in your life, and you are experiencing God's comfort. But just in case there's anyone here today or anyone hearing this word of truth uh, through the Internet or radio, And you are burdened down with guilt and shame over your past sins. You come to worship, perhaps, but you can't experience the presence, the power, and the peace of God. So you fake it, trying to make it. Your life is filled with bitterness and turmoil and conflict and confusion and drama and trauma. On the outside, you smile, you laugh, but on the inside, you're miserable. You smile, on the inside, you're miserable, your mouth. Proclaims religious verbiage and jargon and cliches and terminologies. How are you today? Oh, I am happy in the Lord. God is good all the time. All is well as long as God is in control. But on the inside, there are empty words. Like Solomon says, it's all vanity. If such is the case for your life, despair no longer. The good news, Jesus says to you, blessings are yours when you mourn. Jesus says to you, blessed are those who mourn for they will be Confident. 
Just ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. Forgive you of your sins and grant you comfort that stuff can't provide, people can't provide, beauty can't provide, money can't provide, power, prominence, prestige can't provide. Grant me peace, God, and comfort that only you can provide. And do as the prodigal son did in Luke 19 after recognizing his condition and mourning over his sinful condition and all of those things that he had done. You know the story, taking his inheritance and running to the far country and spending his money on prostitutes and balling and pardoned and wasted all of his resources and found himself in a pig pen in misery. Came to himself, his senses, by the power of God and said, I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your highest servants. His misery drove him to the point of repentance. Repentance led to God's forgiveness. And forgiveness led to God's comfort. For here is the rest of the story. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And and the beauty of that story is the father represents God, the father knowing the dirt that he had been involved in. The father knowing of his trespasses and his sins, yet when he saw him, felt compassion. God is a compassionate God. He knows our dirt. He knows our filth. He he knows our sin. He knows all of those skeletons in our closets. He knows the past, and yet he has compassion on us. And his father ran and embraced him and kissed him. Isn't that like the, the love of God when we come to him as dirty and as messed up as we are, as battered, beaten, and confused with all of the garbage, all of the filth? He still embraces us and kisses us. That's what Calvary's cross is all about. It's God's embrace. It's God's kiss. It's God's compassion. Do you? Acknowledge that there is nothing within you and me to commend to God. Do you ache with the guilt of sin before God and before man? Then come to Jesus just as you are. He will put his robe on your shoulder. He will put a ring on your finger. He will put sandals on your feet. And he will prepare a feast for you. And you will be confident. The essence of verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be confident. 
praise his holy name.